and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 160 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including best-selling authors Bonnie Garmus, Jane Harper and Kate Hamer. CBC run a wide range of courses for writers at different stages of their creative journeys. If you have a complete first draft of a novel and want guidance as you embark on your rewrite, as well as crucial insights into the publishing process, then their best-selling Edit and Pitch Your Novel course is for you. This six-week online course includes exclusive teaching videos from CBC's founder, Anna Davis, and the agents at top UK literary agencies, Curtis Brown and CNW. Students also get the opportunity to receive individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses they offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of any four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with Perminda Mann, the CEO of Bonnier Books. We spoke with Perminda about getting into publishing from a non-traditional background, about working at Milan and Transworld before moving to Bonnier, and about the idea of author as brand. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Perminda, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on Always Take Notes. We wanted to start with your early life um, and your childhood growing up in, in West London, um, one of eight children, your, your parents, uh, immigrants working labouring jobs. And, and we read elsewhere that you kind of would always go to the library and that this was a, a sort of opportunity to be in a quiet space outside this very busy home life. Could you tell us a bit about that? First of all, thanks very much for having me on your show today, um, Simon. Um, it's great to be here. Um, and you're absolutely right. Um, I was born in West London to a family of eight children. I had seven so there were seven girls and one boy, and I was the eldest. And I, um, my parents were Punjabi, first-generation immigrants, and we had quite a strict upbringing, um, and we lived in an Indian community. And we, um, as I said, money was quite scant, um, so and we didn't have summer holidays. So I spent my long summers in um, my local library because it was the one place I was legitimately allowed to go out to visit and I used to just love going to the library and getting my 10 books that was the quota at the time and just losing myself in different worlds learning about other cultures how other people lived um, and it was a my form of escapism it allowed me to dream so absolutely just loved my summers um, lost lost in books of those tens of books, I read that um, C.S. Lewis was a particular favourite. Is that right? Absolutely. Um, and I have shared this story with, with, with many people, actually. Like um, when I was younger, it's one of those things. It, I always go home and I'd sort of shut my door and I'd every now and then occasionally just tempt fate and go in the back of our cupboard, my cupboard and knock on, on the wall and hoping, hoping that there was Narnia there. But um it never was so um, and then obviously watched the animation and my children have been exposed to it as well um and I shared this, that story with my husband actually and he's he was so lovely when we moved into our home most recently he we built a non-suite in our bedroom and he put it behind a cupboard 
Speaking of someone who also um, devoured C.S. Lewis as a child, I was wondering, were you conscious of the, the kind of religious overtones of, or undertones of those novels, which I certainly wasn't? No, of course. Sure. Only when I was an adult and we, we had conversations around it, but I was completely oblivious to all of that. I was just lost, lost in the stories and lost in the world. And you were the first member of your family to go to university. Um, what was the kind of path to further study like and, and what did you study? So... In my household, because we nobody had gone to university, and actually my parents had very lim- had a limited um, education back in India, and having so many daughters for them, the priority was to get us married. So they sort of set the stalls out quite early on when we were young and said, you know, get yourself an education, you know, if you can, if you want to. It was never forced on us, um, but um, as soon as you stop, you'll well, we're going to get you married. And that was what was my motivating, like the motivation behind actually pursuing a further education. I was quite mathematically able at school, but we never had careers advisors. So um, when my teachers were sort of encouraging me to go down that path, all I knew um, and understood was this was going to, I thought only would lead lead me to a career of being an accountant. And I actually, because I loved being in the school plays, I took part in a BBC documentary when I was about 11 years old. Um, I loved art. I loved music at school. So I spoke to my drama teacher saying, I don't know what I want to do. And he his words stuck with me. He said, if you, dev- if you don't know what you want to do, follow your heart and do what you enjoy doing because it would just, it's just a, the, the right thing to do. So to prolong the whole process of getting married, I pursued with my education and I then went to to the dismay of my parents who thought I'll be the next um, Carol Vorderman, but no, I'm going to study arts. So um, I went and studied theatre and media at De Montfort University, hoping to land a career at some point in the theatre or TV or film, which was my aspirations as a child. And could you tell us about your early steps into the workplace after your degree? Is it right that you, you'd applied for an internship at Channel 4, but then the internships were unpaid, so that wasn't, wasn't a way forward that was viable for you? Absolutely correct. So although I managed to get myself to university, it was challenging financially. Um, I mean, I just wanted to spread my wings. I wanted freedom. I wanted to get out of the house. I went and I'd do anything to to sort of get out. And so I pursued a degree, but it came at a price. Um, I was juggling two or three jobs while I was at university. I mean, I loved every moment of it I never I didn't think of anything of it at the time you know I watched my parents both juggling two jobs at a time sometimes three so it was just how you did things it's what you put in is what you got out and so it was was normal to me but when I came back home after university I was drowning in debt so when I did um, have this opportunity to do this internship I simply couldn't afford to do it at that moment in time and naively I thought I know what I'll do I'll go and get a job I will save up for a year clear some of that debt and put some get some money in the bank and I'll come back but um, once I started working and you get used to the at the time weekly wage packet um, and then you start thinking right I'd like to learn to drive because that means I can get a car that will give me my independence um, and then the next thing, you know, I was there, been there two years um, and it was really hard to let sort of let that money go once you start earning it and sort of go and work for free somewhere. So it didn't happen. So I never 
did pursue that. So I was working in a courier company and then they moved me into the accounts department and said, right, we'll pay for your um, accounts training. You're really good with numbers. You're really quick and you know, you're good grasp of them. And it's when they said that to me, I almost had visions of my father standing there going, accountancy. And I went, oh my God, I, I need I need to sort of get out of here. And But I was so confused about what to do next. So then I went to, for the first time, actually, went to see a careers advisor um, and said to them, I, I, I don't know what I want to do with myself. Where do I go? And they advised me to try uh, my hand at sales, um, said your theatrical skills will come in handy. Um, I, I like meeting people. I'm a bit of an extrovert. So I then started interviewing for various sales jobs. Um, but very quickly got disheartened because it was jobs for selling like double glazing, magazine space selling. And I was like, oh, my God. And I was getting quite like dispirited. And and then the recruitment consultant said to me, oh, look, there's a sales job come up at Macmillan Publishing. And I went, publishing? And she said, just before we rethink this, go for, go for this interview. And I'll never forget that day. Um, I walked into the offices of Macmillan Publishing. They were in Victoria at the time um, on Eccleston Street. And I walked through the double doors and I saw all of these books everywhere. And I was like a child in a sweet shop. I couldn't believe where I was. And I said, I can actually have a career selling books. Like, I am so going to land this job. Um, and I sold myself to the sales director at the time um, and landed the job and then found my vocation and uh, haven't looked back since. It's funny, when we interviewed Johnny Galler, he um, also had aspirations for the stage and he said the same thing of um, sort of theatrical, a theatrical sensibility is very helpful when you're trying to sell or promote things. Have you found that that's true, that your kind of interest in, in drama and performance has helped in terms of, uh, in terms of selling books? hundred percent because I like to call myself on my my career I've been a a bit of a chameleon I'd like to say like you know I like I adjust look at the person on the other side of the table and try and understand them get inside their head what do they want what are they looking for who are they and then adjust accordingly and so I connect with them Um, so I think it really did help in my sales job Um, and because you know the best deals are when both parties win um, so I've always been sort of trying to get a fair outcomes for both. And it has been incredible, incredibly helpful doing that, getting inside characters, getting inside people's heads. It's just been, I think, very, very useful indeed. Coming back to this, this kind of first job you had at Macmillan, I saw in another interview that you've advised that people who are interested in publishing should not look exclusively for editorial roles, but also look at sales jobs, look at marketing and stuff like that. Could you unpack that idea a little bit? Sure. I mean, I do a lot of talks in schools now because on the on our whole industry, I mean, most industries now are addressing the inclusion and representation piece. And one of the things I think the myths about this industry, people tend to think about editorial jobs, but actually a talk about publishing as a business. Um, we need um, people in all various um, disciplines in sales, marketing, publicity, um, operations, production, um, IT. Um, so there's so many routes into publishing and actually treating there's, own, there's so many different roles in the value chain as well. And they all contribute 
to the creation of a book and have an impact at different stages. Uh, and so just saying to people, like, I'm sort of trying to encourage people to join our industry in different routes, not just editorial, um, because it is a business after all. When you first joined Macmillan, how did you find the industry in general? Uh, much is made today of inclusion and representation, as you say, and also how kind of white and middle class and nepotistic publishing has been historically. Did you find it to be that way when you first joined? Yes, it was. Um, and I haven't, I mean, only recently I've sort of opened up and started talking about my journey because I pretty much, and I'm glad I did, I pretty much put the blinkers on and just got on with my career. And I think it helped being in sales. But um, I mean, I talked about the joy of landing the job. Um, and then shortly, um, a few weeks into the role, and I started, because I didn't know anything about publishing, so my um, boss at the time kindly organised sort of like some um, an introduction to publishing, sort of learning from going into various different departments. And in that process, I was searching for someone that was like me, and I found no one. And and up until that point, I wasn't aware of any differences. I wasn't, you know, I got through my life. Like, I just get on with people, I fit in, and and I've never really struggled with being the old one out. But then suddenly I became aware of my differences. I became aware of the way I spoke. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, like, I thought I had a good I thought I had a good command of the English language until I and these are the things I, 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 I no one said anything to me these were the things I was telling myself so immediately I panicked um, I enrolled for elocution lessons I enrolled for like doing grammar classes in the evening I just developed this imposter syndrome that I didn't belong there because I just wasn't connecting with anyone. I didn't have the social equity to integrate immediately so I tried I started doing that but luckily Luckily for me, because of the role that I was in, I was in sales. I was outward facing. So I was my day to day contacts were with retail buyers and people that weren't really sort of in London centric, sort of the, the editorial teams and et cetera, et cetera, the people in the business. So I spent a lot of time out of the office. Um, and actually, because I was sales driven, I was just focused on focused on doing my job and I was learning the industry that I quickly forgot about my insecurities and just got on with the job and managed to circumvent all of that. And I honestly, upon reflection, when we have these conversations now and, and I look back, I don't think I would have made it where I have if I didn't have the career path that I did, which was pretty much sort of on the outskirts of core publishing and, and got to this role that I, where I have today and and actually I think a lot of people there was a lot of nepotism there's a lot of who can pay afford an unpaid internship it's people who are sort of like family members people who are well off people who are living at home I mean it's it, it was a very a very closed industry um, and all of these things we are now addressing I'm really happy that we're all addressing it we're making great headway now but in those days it was quite a closed shop quite lucky I got in when I did actually and, and after a while I felt quite for, for a lot of people that was trying to get in and never did I felt a guilty for a while because I sort of landed accidentally in publishing felt I took someone's opportunity something they'd always dreamed of doing so sort of carried that around with me for a while too. Could you talk us through the your other jobs pre-Bonnier so working at Transworld and then working at these independence at Hinkler and I'm gonna uh, I think mangle the pronunciation here but is it Fidel publishing yeah so 
when I so I sort of again lost myself in my job just focused on doing a great job focused on learning everything about the industry just sort of got my head down um, and very quickly it was I think it's built in me I'm quite like you know once I set myself on a goal, I get it, deliver it quite quickly. And, and, and I, my, when I realized my boss, um, I, I wanted to step up and there was no room to move. I then moved on to Transworld Publishing. Um, and again, they were set up in the base in London, but then the outskirts of London, they were annealing at the time, lovely sort of family community feeling there. And I settled in quite neatly in there. And I, I, I loved working there with a brilliant culture. This is before we were, were the sort of, were part of Random House, became this big corporate. And, and then what in my third year, Bertelsmann, who owned Transworld, then acquired Random House. And I was doing special sales at the time. I was um, a big fish in a small pond, doing the only person doing what I did. And when the merger started happening and I, they were merging my department, I suddenly, I, wanted, I, want, I just didn't, I don't think I couldn't fit into a corporate setting. I'm a bit of an entrepreneur. And Hinkler Books was a client of Random House Children's Books, and I inherited them. And after my first meeting with them, they, the owner at the time, Stephen Unger, said he wanted to set up a UK office. And at the time, in parallel to that, I had met my now husband partner at the time. And so the whole, uh, as a threat of getting married for my parents had disappeared. And he actually then started saying to me, encourage me to have a career, start thinking about career be ambitious um so I started doing an MBA um in my own time um to get some business skills and so when this opportunity came along from Hinkler would you set up a UK office for me um a sales office a distribution office I jumped at the chance and what followed was a steep learning curve three very challenging years but you know it made me the person I am today sort of leaving the comfort of a big corporate, setting up your own office, no IT around you, having a warehouse, setting up a server. I mean, like it was challenging in every way. And at the same time, I was doing my MBA. But after three years of burning the candle at both ends, I graduated with my MBA. Um, I had set this office up. We were trading successfully, but I decided to take a break. At the time, I thought it was a break and have a baby because I'd got married as well just throw that into the mix too. Um, um, and I thought that was having a break because I thought I'm going to have maternity leave. That would be a break. Oh, little did I know how exhausting it is to be a, 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 a mum. But um, after that, I decided I didn't want to go back and do that job. It was just too consuming. Um, so then I got approached by an, in, another children's publisher, Fidel. They were based in Canada and said they'd like me to do the same thing, but it was a much less aggressive ambitions. And so, and I couldn't really afford to go and have childcare and come back into London and go back into trade publishing. So I I knew I wanted a second child. I wanted lots of children, I'm a family of eight. So I took that role and worked from home. And then when I had my daughter, I decided it was time to go back into a team because I was just, I was lonely. Um, and I really, I just thrive off working with people. So. I felt a little bit like I was disconnected with trade publishing at the time. So, and I had met this um, in my paths of doing this role. I met, a, I'd come across a toy company and they had offered me a job. So I went back to them and said, is that job still available? And they offered, I joined the toy company and worked in their books plus division for three and a half years. Really enjoyed that job. It was completely new world. Um, did Even though it's books plus, I was exposed to toys. I learned about licensing. I set up an international um, sales division for them. And then um, 
but my children um, were growing and one I think my son was four years old because I was traveling to Hong Kong he started saying to me mum I don't want you to go and was crying it was like New Year's Day I think it was after Christmas I would pack my suitcase and go and I realized at the time like I was just become quite selfish but um, I was I'd spent these five years being on my own so I was just lapping everything up um, I decided it, I had something had to change so I went to my owner and said can I have flexible working whilst I'm working and when it was rejected I knew something had to change and that's when I thought okay I'd like to get back into publishing and I saw this job ad for Bonya Books um, didn't know Bonya Publishing I didn't know who they were I'd never heard of them but they the job was a sales manager being able to work from home two days a week that's why I went for it um, to have a work-life balance and I applied for the job and that was 13 years ago here I, and here I am. How did that stint at the toy company affect your holistic approach to books now? I saw that you struck up a deal with Disney. How did that experience working there reshape the way that you think about books and promoting books and sort of uh, merchandising them? It changed my approach to everything in terms of started thinking about authors as brands because it was all brands that we were dealing with in, in the toy industry and how we market books as well in terms of the assets that we used for toys. It was like marketing assets, when, particularly when I was selling to international clients, it wasn't just the product, it was a package. And it started having a more holistic um, approach to, to books as well, particularly in the children's space, where we do things in series, when we were looking at licensing and looking and then brad extensions it really started making me think beyond the single book and just started thinking about it as a brand more so I and mean, it happened and, and also now in, in the adult space as well actually we're thinking about when authors are coming on board we're thinking not just about the one book is this author a brand do we is there a series in this if they're a non-fiction writer do we take them into a fiction space if they're a fiction writer is there a non-fiction is there um memoir in this author I don't know so we start thinking and we're also thinking about like extensions on audio now is there a podcast so it's all it's thinking about all the different platforms will execute it and thinking about content rather than just the one book here at Bonya we've we really have a very focused title count so every book that comes in every every proposal that comes in I mean they're not all suited for that we do publish books that are just like we know they are going to be a one book but we believe in them so much we'll get behind them but a lot of most of the time we are thinking about beyond the book beyond the one book where what other spaces can we take this author how do we develop this author into a brand because as you know now people consume content in different ways we've got readers we've got listeners we're doing a podcast here today so it's how do we shape that content for different platforms and reach new new readers because that's what we're all striving to do all the time always grow grow our audience space in different spaces in different ways hello everyone i'm briefly interrupting this interview with perminda man to let you know that always take notes will be doing a live recording at wimbledon book festival on friday the 23rd of september at 6 p.m uh, tickets are £15. We'll be in the William Morris tent um, and we'll be interviewing Kit DeWall, the author of My Name is Leon and Without Warning and Only Sometimes. So do get tickets and come along. It'd be fantastic to meet as many of you as possible.
We had uh, Lauren Child on the show recently, and we talked to her about the, the changing landscape in children's books over the past two decades, and particularly the, the rise of sort of celebrity authors, so people who have a profile from, from something else who then come in and, and write children's books. And she was, I think, quite thoughtful about it, but also said that, you know, this is, from, from many writers' perspective, quite a challenging or even a kind of problematic development because it crowds out kind of people who've come up as, as children's authors. What's your, your sense on, on that? debate i think there's not one size fits all and and there should there's spaces for everyone and and making sure there is a space for everyone i think it's really important to nurture and develop new writers their careers and give them the support to have successful writing careers and when you have that strategy it is a long-term strategy it's a build over years and you have to commit and get behind them um, and then for commerciality reasons as well, um, we do sometimes we take on um, writers that, that are celebrities that have but have a story to tell that is actually again going back to the whole brand conversation. It's a brand extension of who they are, and if having them on board and they have a huge following in terms of like children know who they are, love them, are engaged with them, and if it means that if they publish a book gets a child reading I'm very happy to do that because anything to get children reading and if it takes a credible celebrity to do that then let's do that but then let's get them not just a one book reader but making sure that they're developing a habit of reading and then on the back of that introduce them to to other writers and other books that they'll enjoy I think if it's an entry point then that's absolutely fine but again, you know, I we don't have like this one single strand strategy. We have, we have different, uh, we have different imprints within our children's division, for instance, and and even within those, we have a real blend of like different types of writers within them. So I think it, it, every proposal, every book is unique to that book. So we, it, it has to have its own unique publishing strategy, marketing strategy, publicity strategy, whatever, depending on who the reader is. Every reader is different. How do we reach them? So it's it's a bespoke package for every book. You've mentioned the um, various imprints that fall under the Bonnie of Books banner. And you mentioned also as well that when you sort of first saw the job advert that you didn't really know that much about the company. For any listeners who are also not familiar, could you give us a kind of brief history of the company, um, the different sort of imprints it works uh, with and um, yeah I guess a just sort of potted summary of what Bonnier is about. Well Bonnier our parent company Bonnier has been around for over 200 years now so it's quite an old company really well established in Scandinavian countries we're quite big in Germany I think we're not tracking up like number two number one depending on day of the week it is against BRH so a huge European company um, and they entered the UK, the English speaking market, as we say, um, about 15 years ago. And just before I started, and they were acquiring just small children's publishing houses and leaving them pretty much to their own devices. And so they acquired a small children's publisher, Autumn Books. They acquired Templar Books. They acquired an Australian publishing house called Five Mile Press, a French Picolia, a company called Picolia. Um, and so when I joined, my, this, my predecessor, the CEO at the time, his remit was to bring those companies together and start operating as a group and find synergies. So that was sort of the, my, my early role was, uh, even though I did sales development, um, I was a sales manager, I only did that for five months when he realized that he asked me actually, why, you know a lot more 
then you said at the interview, why are you doing this job? And I went, because I want to work from home two days a week to be with my children. That's why I took this job. And he was like, "Be, a, I would like you to take on the role of business development director. And I said, as long as I can still work from home two days a week. And he said, that's fine. So having that flexibility allowed me to thrive. Um, so then we set up sort of a, on, on a mission to sort of bring those companies together. Um, and then we had a we identified a gap in the um, in, in our portfolio for young adults. So we started Hockey Books. That was a startup. Um, we acquired Piccadilly Press, which was another children's fiction imprint, and then consolidated our children's business. And then said that actually we need to go into the adult space. That was our next area of investment. We couldn't find a company to acquire. Um, and I had at the time met through a, a mutual friend, Rio Ferdinand's agent, um, uh, who was looking for a home for him because he was his 10 years at Manchester United. He wanted to do a testimonial book. Um, and because of the short lead time, they'd left it so late. There was no publisher who sort of wanted to do it because it was just a big coffee table book and it was like March and he wanted it for August. Um, and I sort of, <laughs> I said, we, we, we can do it. And I, we didn't even have an adult like publishing arm at this point, but I knew we had people in the business who had worked in those spaces. So we just across the business all got together and just said, let's give it a go. And we just sort of challenged everything that like all the publishing models that were out there at the time and said, we produced this huge coffee table book killed us we wouldn't do it again but we did it in three months and we just to just challenge ourselves even more we put a, a, we had this new technology we had stumbled across which was um an app which when we could put video content within the app that was triggered in within qr codes in the book so we were like well let's experiment at the, with this why wouldn't we but we did it and that sort of gave birth to blink so we thought like we can do this ourselves. So then I set up about recruiting people to join us. So we had this startup, Blink Publishing. And then we had um, uh, Zaffa, uh, which was a startup as well, with Mark Smith bought that proposal to us. And so within a few years, very quickly, we suddenly became this big publishing house, um, a trade publishing house. And we also acquired um, a mass market publisher called Igloo Books. So we were very busy in a very short space of time. We like grew from pretty much nobody knew who Bonnier Publishing was in the UK to now we're one of the seventh largest publishers in the country. So yeah, it was quite a roller coaster journey. So we are now a fully fledged trade publisher. So now as the company sits, we have two divisions. We have the mass market publishing division, Igloo Books, which is sat in Northampton, who are the publishers of Disney and their business model is very different from the London-based business, which is the trade business, where we have the children's trade division, um, which is the companies that they started off with, but plus the adult division, which is at the as it as it currently stands, we have Zephyr and Blink, which is the non-fiction and the fiction arm. But I'm in the process of setting up a new division now. As of next month, there'll be a new trade division, where um, which will culminate the company we bought last year, Black and White Publishing in Edinburgh. Um, we had a music imprint, 9.8, which was a startup with Pete Selby. We've brought a brilliant um, publisher on board from an indie called Scribe, her name's Sarah Braybrook, who's setting up a serious um, narrative nonfiction imprint. We've got a new office in Dublin, which is all about local publishing again, um, imprints yet to be named, and that's 12 books a year for the local market again there. And um, Tim Whiting is joining us from Hachette next month to run this division and build on that um, 
So it's all about organic growth. There was a certain amount of controversy attached to the the tenure of your predecessor, Richard Johnson, when he was CEO at Bonnier. So um, just from this is what's in in the public domain and what's been written, but um, you know that he promised huge, huge growth, much higher than than would be expected generally in publishing, um, and eventually it culminated in him being fired for misconduct and also allegations that he had absconded with, um, you know, potentially multi-million amounts of money. I don't know if you're able to talk about this at all, but um, is that something that you can? Obviously, you were there during during this time. Is that something that we can go into at all? Personally, I like to talk about the future and I like to I like to talk about what the turnaround we've had since he stepped down and I took over um, and the great team people that were there and the, the company that we are now. It's been a massive turnaround in terms of our reputation um, and also the type of publisher that we are now. So prefer to fix um, the conversation around the positives around the future rather than dwindle on, on on a past that we all like sort of almost have like to think we've buried now and forgotten about and moved on from. Fair enough. In which case, could we talk about one of the projects you um, sent over? Uh, the Pointless Book by Alfie Days, who is YouTuber and sort of general social media star. Um, could you tell us a bit about how that project came about um, and also what the response and reaction to it was? So that was a, a project that was a real turning point in, in our story um, because I, mean, I remember at the time we'd launched Blink after the, the whole Rio Ferdinand project and we had signed up to do his memoir and we had signed up a number of other books and um, one, of my, one of my colleagues, her daughter was, she was 14, 15, was watching YouTube. And she came into the office and she said, we need to do a book with a YouTuber. And I went, what's a YouTuber? Um, so I was really this world, I was exposed to this world of YouTube. And um, I mean, these bloggers were ranking up more viewers than some of these TV programs when you started looking at the stats and young people were so engaged with them. They were tuning in daily and watching them and their friends and living their lives out on, on screen. And so I said, we have to do a book um, with them. So um, the first book we actually went for was Zoella. Um, we wanted, because she was like, you know, Alfie's girlfriend. And we thought that we must do a book with Zoella. But then when we spoke to the agent, we um, she he was already in conversation with a publisher. Obviously now know that was Penguin at the time. Um, and we said, okay, um, in that case, can we do a book with Alfie Days? He's a... Um, and he goes, what book would you do with Alfie? Um, and again, um, Rachel, we talk about the brand, my learnings at in the toy world. It was like, it's called Pointless Blog. We'll do a pointless book. So it has to be an extension of what he's doing on, on his channel. So it, that was the birth of Alfie Day's Pointless Book. And it was such an exciting journey because of my colleague's daughter. And she showed us like on YouTube how many fans would turn up to events and how engaged they were and they were just it was just it's just a crazy world at the time and we were like okay we published the book and we just could not get placement anywhere in traditional retail because no one knew who vloggers were what's a pointless book it's not a proper book and we were like trust me we we tried everything and just nobody would list it so uh, my sales director at the time she pulled a favor from her contact at Waterstones in Piccadilly. And she said, look, we want to have a signing. And they were like, oh, like, and so they agreed, but they said, we'll order 300 books. We said 300 books is not going to be enough. 
what do you mean? Like even our top authors here, like that, that's about how many we ordered. David Beckham had like, I think they were, he was in signing about two weeks before here and 700, 800 or whatever books. And so we were like, we need more books. So they, in, they refused. So we ordered a lot more books and stored them at the office. And then he was on, it was on Amazon, like an obscure number somewhere. And then he went onto social media, onto Twitter at the time, and he tweeted about his book and he mentioned it in a vlog. And it literally overnight crashed Amazon's website and went to number one. Then we had a call from Amazon. You never get a call from Amazon. Like, it's like, you don't, nobody's there on the other side. And we had this call from Amazon. Who's, what's this book? We've never had so many click throughs in such a short space of time. And we said, he's a vlogger. What's a vlogger? We're like, they're all engaged. His book's coming. They were like, oh my God. So then we said to him to continue to sort of post about his book. Then it sort of came under the radar of other retailers and they were looking at it. What? what's going on still at number one on Amazon and then came the day of publication and we had the Waterstone signing and um, the PR team were sort of had organized to go with Alfie and do the signing on the afternoon of the Saturday I never forget this I was at home with my young children when we were having breakfast and I got a call from the publicist saying Minda oh my god there are hundreds of girls outside Waterstones already they've been here queuing since five in the morning and I was like Oh my God, she goes, it's getting quite scary. Like there's loads, it's just chaos. And they hadn't organized security. I mean, this is the first time this has ever happened. So we weren't prepared for this. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll get myself over. And Alfie, oblivious to all of this, and actually used to this in other spaces, was continued to tweet, I'm coming with Zoella. Oh my God, Zoella's coming too. So more girls were turning. I mean, it was like absolutely bonkers. And I think it was like 12 o'clock Waterstones, the busiest day for them of the week, like had to shut their doors and stop people coming in um, because it became a security issue. And then I arrived in a cab. I couldn't get through the crowd. So I had to stop. I had to walk all the way through all these girls back into the store. And we thought, how are we going to get Alfie? How are we going to get him in? Like there was just hundreds of thousands of girls outside. I mean, the roads were blocked. I think the staff were panicking in water zones. The the ordinary shopper, they they weren't allowed to get in. I think it was just, it was unprecedented what happened that day and then we had tv camera tv crews turning up as well like what is all this chaos who's alfie days it was and i think he made headlines that day who's alfie days who are these vloggers we managed to get him in through and got some security got him through and he signed 300 400 books it was just the whole thing was just chaotic but it was we like to think a bit of a rock and roll moment for us and we got him out that day but there were so many disappointed fans um and so what we did was then we organized a more coordinated event at excel where we had security we had, it was organized and he he was there for the whole day and he signed everyone's book who didn't manage to get in that day and there was a lot of them very upset cr- lots of um backlash on on social media but he, they never got to see him so we organized that post that but what it did then was spawned a whole Bay of publishing, raft of publishing around vloggers, and everybody was publishing a YouTuber after that. So I'd like to think we sort of like were the first to sort of do that and set a new trend, trendsetter in that regard. But it was really it was an exciting time, and I think since then it's a norm. Now we talk about influencers, um, not just on YouTube. Now it's obviously moved on. Now we then moved on to Instagram influencers, and now most recently TikTokers, which again. TikTokers, influencers are have made books cool for for young people, um, and really got them engaged with reading. We've seen that with 
of two or three of our books last year that we published like four or five years ago, suddenly selling four times as much in one year as they'd done the whole of their publishing life. And that was because young people recommending influencers, which are young people recommending them to each other in a very organic way. It's absolutely, it's wonderful. It's wonderful to watch. But again, loads of loads of publishers really enjoying this current trend of TikTokers with their YA titles. Um, and now as, as time's going on, we're seeing the demographic getting older uh, users that are using TikTokers now. So I think it's an exciting time ahead for publishing in general in terms of engaging new readers with our books. Thank you for telling that fascinating story of when Waterstones got, got overwhelmed. I was wondering just for, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with it, if you could just unpack some of the publishing terminology you'd use, particularly the difference between trade and mass market, and then also what placement means. So I don't think we're all in agreement what trade and mass market, what defines that we're always challenging ourselves. I suppose where in the seat that I'm sat in, um, I see mass market more when we talk about igloo as value publishing so they're not traditional book outlets they tend to be like well igloo's key customers like we'd say the works is like the big the big customer which is not a traditional bookshop as such but actually in the last 12 to 18 months they are becoming um a go-to destination for books now um but they were not at the time and places like Lidl Aldi, Wilkinson's, making um, in stationery shops, in stationery aisles, in supermarkets. So books for good value. Um, and then mass market, again, it's in the trade, in our trade business, we do sell into mass market, which is seen as supermarkets. It's where books are sold in volume. And then traditional, we call the traditional outlets tend to be high street, like your Waterstones, your independent bookshops, and then online, which is your Amazons of this world. So, and placements is, is like we're getting placements when you refer to retail is getting the slots because um, they have in every, every book retailer has limited slots, what they allocate them to. So it's, it's like getting a book placed is getting a place, one getting a slot in whichever retailer you're talking about. Mostly referred to when we're talking about supers because they have, they have limited slots for books. And we're all competing for those every year. It's a rule of the show that we always ask guests about money. Um, and when we've had other chief executives and publishers on the show, we often ask them about royalties um, and the royalty model. And lots of authors feel that there is a sort of undue balance between publishers making a profit and their and their advances or their royalties. What do you make of that argument? There is, again, we talked about earlier about um, when we're talking about publishing and the creative execution of each book, um, there's not one size fits all when we talk about the commercials around each author. And it depends, every author is different. And we have to look at each one in isolation. Um, but what I can say is when we're talking about, there are different models now within publishing with like the, we have a digital model, digital models where we don't have any advances and they have a larger royalty share. But when it comes to advanced levels, again, it, whether your advanced level is small or, or huge, depending on you know, who you're, where you are in your career, you eventually, if your book is successful, it, you'll, get the, you'll earn the money in royalties. It just means you'll get it later rather than sooner. All advanced means is that you're sort of banking that money now um, and you can command that depending on, if you're a very well-established author with many bestsellers under your belt, you can negotiate a bigger advance for yourself. 
but it doesn't mean a new debut author will not earn big money depending on the success of their book because if their advance is small to start out with we like to we prefer to make a sensible decision about how we what advance we pay because it comes into the question of like how much then do we have to spend on marketing campaigns pr campaigns because i'd rather and production you know like getting those production values right because i think the more money we have to get the book out there and get it into as many readers hands as we can eventually the author will get that money back in royalties anyway um so i think it's quite equitable how we split the revenue in terms of the, the spores that we all receive from our books but it's quite a topical conversation but i think again if you're a new author or trying to, an author's trying to build yes you need to negotiate a decent advance for yourself but it should be about the package what is my marketing campaign what's my publicity campaign what goes beyond publication date what are you doing depending on the book like for the longevity like you have what's happening in six months what will you be doing in 12 months because ultimately the more books we sell the more royalty they're going to earn so you can't just look at advance and its isolation i think it's about it's about the whole package thanks for for talking thoughtfully about that um just following from rachel's question another particularly when we've had published on the show a particular question we've asked is with the business itself what fraction of your of your revenue is is used for paying writers is that something that that you can give an indication of um it's not something we share externally as i said for myself's background as well you know, you learn every, if you want people to continue to work with you, to you want to be their publisher, you've got to, it's got to be an equitable split. It's like, you've got to be, it's got to be fair. And I think I'd like at Bonya Books UK, I like, certainly speak for ourselves. I think it's a very fair share, fair share of, um, of what we earn. There's so many, there's just so many parts of the, um, on the, on the value chain in terms of the spend that we we have to think about and like you know not just it's a it's a it's a business ultimately so we've got all different moving parts we've got you know the production the distribution the we pay all the editorial services that go into making the making of the book we want to make the best book we can and when the revenues come in the author gets their fair share more what's been agreed from the outset which i think is well, i like to think it's fair we're coming towards the end of our time, so I wanted to ask about another smash hit of yours, um, The Tattooist of Auschwitz. Um, how much of a turning point was that for, for Bonnier? It was a very timely when The Tattooist came along. So it's when I just took over as CEO and we were going through a transformation period of, again, looking at who we are, the journey we've been on, where do we want to go? And as part of that exercise, stabilising the business, I'm really focusing on becoming like this in, uh, publisher based in in London, um, and, and all our world English speaking publishing would come out from here. So while we were looking at all the operational efficiencies and working behind the scenes at the front of stage, this book um, that we had acquired, um, a brilliant editor that we had in our Australian um, team, Echo Publishing, had found Heather Morris, um, the author, um, and worked with her on this incredible story and um, we decided to bring it over here because they didn't have a rights team and the the London team said we'll sell it around the world for you we'll operate for you and look you know I'll be frankly honest at the time we thought it was a brilliant story um really I loved it when I first read it but you know it it, it was it was wonderful that this was a word of mouth 
success. And it was when it was published, um, the reviews it got, um, it started snowballing. Um, and then we brought the author over. And then suddenly, like, it was today, I think, I believe, she sold 15 million copies worldwide. Um, it was a number one bestseller. Sunday Times bestseller. It was on the top of the paperback charts. It was a New York's best um, number one um, bestseller. It, honestly, it was just the timing couldn't have been more perfect for we were doing all it just it just it was such a great it was just such a wonderful story to have at the time. This story that was connecting with everyone around the world. It was introducing I mean, people who don't ordinarily read were buying this book because of word of mouth. They were sending in their own stories to our author and that spurned a whole new book called stories of hope people sharing their stories i mean it was it was bringing people together it was connecting people and it was just so lovely um and as i said it like it, it was an unprecedented reader response as well um and although it was a number one book for many many months though they didn't win any awards at the time which you know um for me, it was really important that it just got people reading and people talking and people sharing and brought people together. And, and I think that's the, be the beauty of books, you know, sort of stories that are universal. Um, so it was like, that was just a timely bestseller. Every, and I've been told everyone has one every now and I'm waiting for our next round for our next, um, our next tattooist, but um. It, it was a book that really said everything about who we were as a company as well, just connected with so many readers around the world. A final question for me was about your, your new literary nonfiction imprint. And I was wondering where, where that fits into the, the kind of broader business model, given that, you know, you've mentioned these other projects like The Pointless Book and things, which were clearly hugely commercially successful, but are very different things. And, and what um, is the aspiration with... Uh, that imprint and then how was that perceived both internally and, and then maybe externally within the wider trade that Bonnier wanted to do that kind of thing so one of the things I when I took over as CEO was again when we talk about who we are what kind of publisher are we we wanted I wanted to build bridges back to our parent company in Stockholm who'd been around 200 years plus they've been publishing Nobel Prize winners um and so it was really built, it was become in our quest to become a fully fledged trade publisher. We wanted, we wanted to have um, a literary arm. And then we, which was the birth of Manila Press. And Manila actually plays homage to our owner's family home in Stockholm, which is called Manila. Um, and so that's where that we was, we, we was inspired by that trip over to Stockholm to their home and understanding our heritage, understanding our history, um, and just sort of making a connection connection with that. So it's just as a, a, a interesting question at the end. I mean, do you, when you go to Sweden, like, do you have to sort of go on the Bonnier family moose hunt or stuff like that? Like, how does it, how does it all work? No, they've got a, they've got a wonderful family home, which part is partly closed off, obviously for the fam, part, some of the family still live there. The, the chairman lives there. They, the, the, previous chairman but then they have this other part they've put they've preserved it it's amazing they have this beautiful gallery in there for portraits of all their authors over the years it's absolutely I mean you can spend hours in there but it was um the decor it's just all I mean it's not a public museum but they open it up for special for special moments like shareholders dinners 
when people special guests come over it is a very special special place so much history in there as well um and they've got a lot the old library in there as well and the first book in a which was i believe it's uh, the first book they published was proof that napoleon didn't exist 200 is still there in the glass case i mean i don't know I, I don't know if, if it was a bestseller, but that's how the company started with that book. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place. But no, I haven't <laughs> been on a blue moose hunt. No, I don't think they have either, but not that I know of anyway. Um, I'm hoping it's departed authors because I would find it very unnerving if I went for a special event at someone's house and they had a portrait of me hanging on the wall. But anyway, thank you, Permanda, very much for your time. It was fantastic to speak to you um, and wishing you and Bonnie all the very best going forward. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Perminda Mann. She's on Twitter at Perminda14, on Instagram at Perminda underscore man, and Bonnier Books' website is bonnierbooks.co.uk. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Rachel, what was your takeaway from the interview with Perminda? I enjoyed speaking to Perminda and I thought it was great to have someone on the show who had risen to the top of publishing, but not via that editorial assistant, editor sort of pathway. And it was interesting as well that she had sort of taken time away from the industry and worked in toys. And then when she came back, what knowledge and sort of expertise she brought with her from merchandising and how that sort of informs her ideas about the idea of authors as brands and how she packages books um, more holistically now. What about you? I um, really love having publishing executives on because it's such a kind of crucial part of the business and I think a lot of writers don't know about it. So I thought, you know, both her path and her discussions on the industry were fascinating. Um, I particularly enjoyed hearing about the um, the the kind of mob at the launch of Alfie from Pointless's book, which was um, an excellent point. And It's not from Pointless. Pointless is that game show. Simon. Sorry. Um, my, my, <laughs> it's, it's called the pointless blog I think but yeah I stand I stand corrected but I thought that was a, a kind of fascinating piece of, of recent publishing history and again I just think uh, an impressive lady to have kind of got uh, to where she is and an excellent addition to have on the show uh, Rachel what have you been up to otherwise well I apologize to everyone for my awful summer cold which is not something I've been up to but I feel like I have to acknowledge it. I have been working on some pieces for The World Ahead which is an annual publication uh, by The Economist which as the name suggests looks ahead to the year that's coming. So I've been summing up some of the films and museum openings and shows and things for people to look forward to so that will come out uh, towards the end of this year. How about you Simon? Um, I've been trying to clear my deck because I'm going uh, to Korea uh, for a couple of weeks in a couple of days time to go and visit my girlfriend's family which I'm looking forward to I've not been there before and yeah otherwise with um magazine work really so so fairly 
fairly normal but, but busy. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikum. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser, and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at Take Notes Always, on Instagram at Always Take Notes. If you'd like to support us via our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.